every day thousands of prayers ask God through His Son Jesus Christ to heal. Does He have the power over disease? Did His power in this area cease with His ascension into heaven 2,000 years ago? When someone is not healed, is this evidence of personal failure? Or does it prove that this entire business of praying to Jesus is all a farce? Let's listen as our study leader Dave Wurtson seeks to share a biblical perspective on this controversial area of divine healing. In every single week we pray for physical healing. Now why do we do that? Why do we do that? Does Jesus have power over disease? There's a lot of confusion in the church today. I think most of us would agree, yes, he had power in his first coming. He had power when he came to the earth. But I'm not so sure that he has power today. And then there's whole groups of believers that believe that God really does have power today, that Jesus Christ does miraculously touch situations and heal people. Many of the people that hold that will go on and say that if you do this technique, they don't usually use those words, but the idea is that if we pray hard enough and if we petition strong enough and if we can get enough fasting, if we can get enough hours of prayer, I think we can get God moving. In fact, in some churches you go to, the pitch of the whole service, from the way that we organize it musically and the way that the speaker speaks, the whole thing is to get God moving and to get us moving with him. And if we, if we can just get a hold of him strong enough, we can make something happen. I believe deep in your heart that there are kind of two groups of people here. One group have the idea that when you pray, if you get it right, then something will happen miraculously. In other words, somebody will be healed. If you ask the Lord to heal your child when they've got a fever, and if you pray the right prayer and you get a hold of the throne of God, it'll go away. When it doesn't, if it doesn't, then you look very strongly inside yourself and you say, well, what did I do wrong? God must be angry with me. God must be upset with me. I guess I didn't try hard enough. I guess there must be some sin in my life. I guess I don't have enough faith. And so we go back to the drawing board because it didn't fly well. The miracle didn't take place, so we try harder. That's one group that's here today. I think there's another group, and I think from a natural temperament standpoint, I think I fall into this group. And that's the group here that's very comfortable with a Jesus that can heal the blind and heal cripples and raise the dead in the first century and very comfortable with the fact that he has that kind of power in the future. But he's very distant as far as that's concerned today. And basically, there's a group here that look upon disease as just being an infection and some microbes have invaded the body. And what we need to do is we need to get the machine fixed. Just like when there's something wrong with your car, you need to get a good mechanic and you need to get the machine fixed and then it will run right. And if someone dies, it's because the machine went haywire and we don't have a good enough technique in order to get the machine fixed yet. But give science enough time and give the human reason enough opportunity to figure out how it works and we'll get it fixed. And we'll be able to conquer this thing called sickness and death. Now what I want to share with you today is that there's some truth in all those different models that I shared. 
There's also a lot of distortion in those two models. The one model that presents the idea that if we get it right, God will do something. And that God really will miraculously do things today. But it's up to us to pray through, to fast through, to say the right words, to get a hold of God's hand strong enough and squeeze it hard enough, and he'll do what we want him to do. There's a little bit of truth there, but there's also a terrible distortion. There's also a little bit of truth in the, in the medical model, the scientific model, because the scripture teaches us that we are men and women made in the image of God, and reason is part of the image of God. And truly, some of the foundations of that approach to life and that man can learn about God's creation and he can learn how things work, certainly there's an element of truth in that. We talked about Luke being the Apostle Paul's beloved physician. And yet if we lock the universe up into that's all there is in sickness, that's all there is in death, it's just a matter of the machine falling and failing, then we're going to miss something very, very important about reality. And I think we need to think it through in a very biblical and in a very Christ-like sense. And so let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. We want to begin as we begin to interact with some of these questions about healing with Matthew's pericope or Matthew's discussion about the Lord Jesus' power and authority over disease in his earthly ministry. Let's begin with chapter 8 and pick it up after Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount. It says, when he had come down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. If we go back to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, we'll find out why large crowds were following Jesus. Because they were amazed at his teaching. Because Jesus taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. What we're going to be talking about as we look at the life of Christ and his power over disease, his power over demons, and his power over nature, is we're looking at the ultimate authority. The one who has the power, who has the omnipotence, who has the authority. This is a very, very important idea. Because that's why we're to worship him. That's why we're to adore him. It will change the way that we live as individuals if we understand that Jesus had authority. Now, when Matthew claims that Jesus had authority, I ask the question, how do I know that? How can I be sure that this Jesus of Nazareth has authority? Matthew says, David, I hear that question. I will go on now and in the Gospel of Matthew, it's also repeated both in Mark and Luke, I will prove to you how I know that Jesus has authority. His first evidence is Jesus' authority over disease. It says that a man with leprosy. And as soon as you heard the word leprosy in the first century, there was a thud. If I wrote, and there was a man with AIDS, in the modern culture, it would have the same thud as there was a man with leprosy had in the first century. You read Leviticus 13 and 14. There's a whole series of, of laws of cleanness and uncleanness. And this idea of leprosy is not just for Hansen's disease and that Hansen's bacillus, but this word leprosy in the first century covered a whole range of very difficult and serious um, conditions of the skin. But every one of these conditions had one thing in common. They ostracized someone from the presence of worship, from the presence of his people, 
If you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur, one of the things that General Lew Wallace picked up on was this tremendous sense of alienation as he has some of his lead characters come down with this horrible disease and they go out into the caves outside the city and nobody goes out there to see them. And so when we read, and there was a man with leprosy who came, there's this awful depressing, oh, no. And everyone is scurrying away. Everyone is getting away. Why? Because leprosy has authority. Leprosy has the power of life and death in the first century. There's not a cure for that. And look what this man does. He comes and he kneels before Jesus. And he said to him, Lord, at this point in Christ's ministry, the word Lord might have simply been sir. And the Greek word that's used there can mean just sir. But as we read it from our perspective of knowing who Jesus is, this leprous man spoke with greater wisdom than perhaps even he himself knew. And he's doing the right thing. He's bowing down and he's acclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He has authority. So he's a man with a horrible condition, a man that is in desperate straits. His body is caving in. And he comes to the Lord and he worships. And look what Jesus says. Well, look what the man says to Jesus. If you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. The very first thing as we look about Jesus' power over disease, I want you to ask the question, is Jesus willing? I want all of you to think very carefully about that question. Is Jesus willing to make us well? In other words, is it in the heart of God... Is it in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to be sick or for us to be well? And I think there's a lot of confusion about that. You see, I think that some of us in grappling with the reality that we live in a world right now where not everyone does get well. In fact, the truth of the matter is that you can have person that's very powerful for the Lord. They're a very powerful minister of the gospel. You can have someone that's having a worldwide ministry and the entire church can pray for that individual and they can believe that the Lord's going to heal them and sometimes they die. Now that scares the willies out of, out of people. In fact, that's a great crisis of faith. In fact, there's probably someone here who deep inside, it's really a miracle that you're even here today, because you prayed fervently for someone that had something like leprosy, that hopeless condition, and they haven't been miraculously healed. And so you ask the question, is Jesus willing? You see, that's why we fall back on that idea that we need to work harder, we need to try harder, because when it seems that Jesus hasn't come through, a believer can't say, well, he isn't willing. Jesus isn't willing. He doesn't want people to get well. Even worse, none of us can say, well, I guess he just doesn't have the power enough. I guess he's just not strong enough. None of us can really say that. If you do, you leave the church and go out into the secular world. But those of, those of, those of us that are here, we turn it back on ourselves. And we say, well, I guess we did something wrong. But deep in our soul, deep in our soul, and there's some of us that say, way down deep inside, maybe he isn't willing. Maybe he 
somehow delights in this. And sometimes what we say is, well, the Lord is going to use this. You need to rejoice in your leprosy. You need to rejoice, and then we change it. We say, well, you need to rejoice for your leprosy. Because the Lord's going to work it all together for good to them that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Every one of you have heard testimonies, I thank God for my cancer. Because God has worked through this cancer to bring great glory to himself. Now understand the point of that. In fact, one of the most extreme messages that I ever heard on that is I heard a daddy get up who had lost his son to a horrible terminal illness. And before several hundred of us, he poured out his heart and talked about how he finally came to the place where he said, I thank God for the illness that took my son. And the point of the message was that all of us need to bow before the sovereignty of God and thank God for illness. Now, I want all of us to bow before the sovereignty of God. And I want all of us to understand biblically that God is working all things together for good. But there's a very important reality to understand. Not everything in this world as we see it today is the heartbeat of God. When we studied the Sermon on the Mount, there was an important request in the Sermon on the Mount. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that is a request, and it means what? God's will on the earth is not being presently done as it is in heaven. That's a very important idea. And it's a deep mystery of the biblical faith. And you must hold these things in tension. There is a tremendous conflict the New Testament is talking about that's going on in the world today. And it's a real conflict. It's not a mechanical one. It's not God just playing games with puppets. It is a life and blood, person to person, spiritual against spiritual. It is the heartbeat and the crisis of reality as we know it. There is a tremendous conflict going on. And Jesus, when he came into the world, came into that enemy territory to bring his authority to bear on this conflict. And he brought, came into the world as an invader. And he came in to fight against the forces of evil. As we talk together next week about Jesus' power over demons, we're going to read about him doing battle with Satan. We're going to read about him commissioning apostles and disciples to do battle with Satan. And we're going to see him saying, I saw Satan falling from heaven, speaking about victories that are won spiritually. That conflict's very real. The charismatics, maybe that's one thing that they've called our attention to very graphically. And I think sometimes to reacting to some of the extremes, we don't understand some of the real biblical truth. Because this question, is Jesus willing? This leprous man asked the very important question, Lord, if you're willing, I know you can do it. And that raises a question, well, is Jesus willing? I want every person to realize that as we pray to our Lord and Savior, he is not willing. His heartbeat 
It's not for any of us to be sick. It's not his heart. It's not what he delights in. It's not what he says, oh, I just covet this for my children. I want them to enjoy this forever and ever. I want them to enjoy leprosy until the ages roll. No, he doesn't. You know, when we go to be home with him and this conflict finally ends, there's not going to be one gathering in the eternal kingdom where we say, dear Lord Jesus, please touch so-and-so's life. Their body is very ill. Please deliver them. That'll never be a request when we get to heaven. You know why? Because he is not willing for his children to be ill. He allows it. He permits it. He won't ever let that terrible evil get outside the bounds that he has ordained like storms at sea and like terrible billows that roll. He sets the boundaries. But don't ever think, don't ever think the Bible teaches that his heartbeat delights in illness. Sound like, that might sound like a little thing, but it's a very important thing. Because it means that we fight against it. It means that we ask him to defeat it. It means that we understand that we've got a Savior that loves us and wants us strong and healthy. And so the lepers ask the right question. Are you willing? And look how Jesus responds. He says this. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. In verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand. I'm reminded of wisdom reaching out her hands in, in Proverbs chapter 2 to meet people's needs. You ever notice that people with compassion, people with compassion always reach out you ever notice that? I think of Ron, when Ron had that accident, sitting right here in the front, he's even got the sling to prove it. And there's a dear guy in their motors, Christian motorcycle gang that just has a tremendous love for the Savior. He reaches out in a time of crisis. When I was speaking to the kids at Word of Life, trying to train them in the ministry, sometimes at Word of Life, they get a little bit like this. They're not very good Texans up there. They're a little bit... New Yorkish, you know, they're kind of tight. And uh, especially because they have six-inch rules and everything else, so you have to try to teach them the difference between a compassionate brother-sister hug and a romantic hug. You know, you have to get all that kind of worked out in their mind, which is real interesting for me, and they do invite me back. But people that are, that are, <coughs> people that are compassionate are touching people. They reach out to touch someone, not Southwestern Bell alone. Jesus reached out to touch people. Brothers and sisters, when you go to the hospital, reach out and touch somebody. A lot of you ask me, what can I do when there's a real crisis? Don't go in there with your hands folded. Touch somebody. You need to get your hugs in. You need to touch somebody. If you care, if you have compassion, and sick people, people that are ill. You know, this leprous man hadn't been touched probably in years. You know why? Because everybody was afraid. Everybody was full of themselves. I need to stay healthy. I need to stay strong. And they were afraid. But not the Savior, because he has authority. 
not the one who's willing. He reaches out and he touches this leprous man. It says Jesus reached out. Jesus reached out and he touched him. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We asked the question, why in the world did Jesus tell him not to tell anybody? Man alive, all the healing services that I know today, you're supposed to tell everybody. In fact, you have a great big publicity campaign and tell everybody that the healer's coming to town. Well, that's how you can tell the real thing from a counterfeit. That's a real good way to tell the real thing from a counterfeit. If someone's real, I want to tell you something. If somebody really has the power to heal like Jesus has, you don't need to advertise it very much. Because people have an unbelievably canny way of finding out the real thing. In fact, that's one of the things I just love about the ministry of Jesus. There's no Madison Avenue hype in Jesus at all. In fact, Jesus does everything wrong from a Madison Avenue standpoint. Because he's real. Do we really believe that Jesus is real? I want you to pray for me in that. It's very important for us to understand, do we believe that Jesus really is who he said he was? Is he really that kind of compassion? That kind of, does he have that kind of compassion? Does he have that kind of power? Does he have that kind of love? And I think all of us would answer, yes, I think he does. And we need to allow that truth to permeate our heart. So that's one story. Jesus reaches out with compassion and raises the issue, does he, is he willing? The idea that we learn is that he is willing. In fact, if the heart of Jesus was done in every situation, if the heart of Jesus, if Jesus did what was consistent with his eternal character, then every one of his children would be healed instantaneously. Because he's willing. That's his heart. Now, we're going to grapple before we're done with the reality that sometimes his people aren't healed. In fact, all of us are living right now in a time when even though we might get a glimpse of the kingdom and there might be a miraculous healing, all of us, if the Lord tarries, will succumb to the final enemy of death, that ultimate enemy, which Jesus said he's not going to vanquish until 1 Corinthians 15 tells us until he comes to take us home to be with him. So one of the things that we need to all understand is that Jesus is willing, but right now we are living in a provisional time, in a time where God is allowing this conflict to continue. And death is still very much an enemy. And sickness is part of that continuum towards death that tears apart this body, tears apart this temple. But in understanding that, let's never, never think that death and illness and all the debilitation and sorrow that comes with that is part of the heart of God. He's allowed it, but it's not his heart. The second story is a real interesting one. In fact, one of my most favorite stories in the New Testament because it has to do with a rare Gentile who touches the heartbeat of Jesus in his earthly ministry because Jesus in his earthly ministry, consistent with the choosing of the Israelite people in the Old Testament, did most of his miracles for his special family, the Israelite people of the Old Testament. If there's one Gentile, there's a few of them that get in, like the Syrophoenician woman up north and this centurion. 
I just love this guy because he's one of those military matter-of-fact officers. You ever met somebody that's been involved in the military all their life? You know, how many of you have some friends that have, they went to A&M, you know, they march in the band and their boots are shined exactly right. They go out into a military career and they're just very disciplined and structured. But one thing you understand in the military is authority. When I went down to A&M, I got a great lesson in authority. Because when Kent was getting ready to put those glorious, majestic boots on, he called out to a younger classman and he asked the younger classman if the boots were ready. And the freshman at A&M did not come into the senior at A&M and say, who do you think you are, Big Daddy? Don't you know I've got calculus to do? I've got a lot of assignments to do. You clean your own dirty boots. In fact, the last time you walked, you walked right in, in some cow manure. And I don't like cleaning your boots. You can clean your own boots. No, man, that freshman didn't come in and talk like that at all. He might have thought like that. But he came in, yes, sir, this way. Got his boots, had the boots, just you could see, you look at your face in the boots. You know why? Because he understands authority. Military men understand authority. And that's what this story is all about. The centurion comes. When Jesus came to Capernaum, and Capernaum is Jesus' hometown in his earthly ministry. It's on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, a delightful place even today. And uh, you can see kind of the ruins of Peter's house, and it just really causes this whole scene to come alive. A centurion, that's a Roman officer that had approximately 100 men. The centurions were the heartbeat of the Roman army. And he came to Jesus and he asked for help, so he came to a good place. Jesus said to him, once again, I'm willing, I will go, I will go and heal him. Now, I would expect, what would you do? You come to the Savior, and you ask the Savior to, to heal your servant. And the Savior says, sure, I'll come and help. I'll come and heal him. What would you do next? You know, I would have said, let's go, right? That's what all of us would have done. Not this centurion, not a military man. Look what he says. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. There's something really important in this centurion, humility. You know, sometimes as I listen to some believers pray, it concerns me they, they get confused about the authority. In fact, I could make this broader. I'm concerned when some preachers teach because they get confused about the authority. This centurion is not confused about authority. You see, he knows who Jesus is. Maybe just in a small way, but he's getting a glimpse of the Lord. And he says, you know, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house. You know, Jesus says that if we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, that he will exalt us. You see, as you go into the presence of God, you need to remember who he is that he's the king of kings. And we must always remember who we are outside of him. The reason we need to do that is you'll never bubble, you'll never thrill, you'll never rejoice with the marvelous grace of Jesus until you understand who he is. And then when he reaches out his hands to you and meets your need, it'll mean oh so much more. But this centurion knew, I'm not even worthy. 
Now, there's some background for that. He was a Gentile, and Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was also a Jew that in, at this time in his ministry would be considered one of the Jewish rabbis, probably. One of the developing, up-and-coming, uh, even though he was a country boy, he was a developing rabbi, a teacher. A Jewish person wouldn't go to the home of a Gentile person because if you did, you would be labeled as unclean. And you would be out of fellowship, supposedly, with God because you had had contact with that unbelieving Gentile person. This centurion knew that. But rather than reacting against it, rather than in prideful human Roman dignity saying, who do you think you are, you Jew? You won't even come to my house. This Roman centurion has that quality of humility. He says, I as a Gentile am not even worthy to have you come over to my house. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. Because remember, he came to Jesus to get help. And he believed that Jesus could bring him this help. And look what he says. He says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my house, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes. And that one to come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Now what is this centurion saying? Very important. He's telling us some things about the reality of the conflict. This centurion looked upon the disease that his servant had as part of a warfare. Just as this Roman centurion would go out against the Parthians and try to protect the empire from the invasion from the east, and he would go out and do conflict, and this centurion knew that he could command his understaff to go take so many troops over there and take so many troops over there and do battle. This centurion knew that those troops would respond to his command because he'd led his men into battle. Now he sees this disease that his servant had as being part of this battle. Now whether or not the centurion understood all this, I don't know. But I know that the Spirit of God understood for us to be able to learn this because this is the way Matthew talks. There is this conflict. Satan is doing battle with the Son of God. We had it in the temptation of Jesus. The Son of God went one-on-one -on -one with the ultimate adversary. We have it now presented to us in this health disease cycle. And this centurion is saying it's part of the battle. And Jesus is the one who has authority. And all Jesus has to do is command and he can send his servants and he can win the victory. He can win the victory. And the centurion understood that. Now I want you to see that it's not like a technique. It's not like, well, I need to say the right things. It's much deeper than that. It has to do with a clear understanding of who Jesus is and the kind of a person that he is and what kind of authority that he has. And so the centurion says, you don't even need to go to my house. I'm not even worthy to have you go to my house. You just say the word. Send out your troops. And I know they can win the victory over this disease that my servant has. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. Now, if you think you've got a passive God who mechanistically, like the God of Islam, fatalistically determines all things, read that again. Now, how many of you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? You believe in the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity? Jesus is fully God and fully man. So if Jesus got astonished, 
it means that God gets astonished. Do you know that if some of you got up this morning, and some of you that are not morning people, you're kind of like Garfield, I don't do mornings. Do you know that God was astonished and that some of you made it? You know it's going to change your life when you start to think about God like that. You see, most of you, it's just deeply ingrained. I don't know how to get it out of you. Because it's deeply ingrained in me. Oh, I got to go. Man, if I don't go, God's going to be uptight with me. I don't want the week to go badly. I want to be sure I get there to worship. You know, man, I can get 40 brownie points, especially if I get there early. Well, we don't want to get too drastic. We'll try to not be quite so late. Very few of you have the idea that God ever goes... Can you believe it? Just to use a personification, I think there's very few of you that ever think the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, turns to God the Father and goes, Father, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see the crisis one of our people was in? And they don't, God doesn't have to do this because he's, he's very immediate. He's right there present with us. But I want you to think about what he's like. He says, isn't that great? Can't believe it. They were really excited about that. They really talked to us about that. They really believed we could meet that need. Man, on that planet where there's such tremendous delusion, such tremendous lies, so much tremendous temptation for discouragement, those people really believe in it. That's great. And all the angels say, Amen, Hallelujah. You don't believe that about God. What's wrong with our relationship with God? This place would literally come unglued if we started getting a hold of that. But Jesus hasn't changed. The centurion, I can just see Jesus. The centurion comes out with this stuff. Lord, I'm not even worthy to go to your house. You don't, I'm not even worthy to have you come to our house. But I understand authority and I know the authority you have. Just say the word and my servant will be well. Jesus turned to the crowd and says, can you believe this? Can you believe this? I haven't seen faith like this. I haven't seen a man that's willing to trust in me as a person like this. Among all the sons of Abraham, among all the people that should have known all about the Red Sea crossing, should have known all about the great deliverance through the ten plagues of Egypt, should have known all about the stories of Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, all of the Jewish people, the Israelite people that should have known so much about what it meant to trust in a great king. And here's this Roman centurion who's alienated from the covenants, a stranger to the promises. And he comes to me today. He says, Lord, make my servant well. But you don't even need to come to my house because I'm not even worthy to have you come. And Jesus, the great king, and I think if you were to look into his eyes, his eyes would have been vibrant. He was astonished. Not astonished where he goes, oh, no, I can't believe this has happened. I wasn't expecting that. Not that kind of astonishment. But it's that tremendous thrill of, man, it's unexpected, and I'm excited, and praise the Lord for someone that's responding to me like that. Praise you, Father. And Jesus gave the word. I love the way the text closes. You know, Jesus gives this long rendition about how many that are going to come from the east and west, like this centurion. Jesus is saying many from the east and west, we fill in a lot of the west part. 
And they'll take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is talking about a great dividing line here. It gives us a lot of insight into what that dividing line is. There's going to be those that really put their simple faith and trust in the person of the Savior, the Lord. And they're going to come to the banquet. They're going to come and be in the kingdom. There's going to be many others that don't believe in Christ personally like that. And they're going to be cast out. A big dividing line. And faith is that dividing line. Faith, and this, this centurion gives great, great illustration to the guts of faith. It is dependence upon the person of the Savior. As it develops within the Gospels, it's dependence upon the person of the Savior because he died to forgive and because he rose again to give new life. But it's always a simple ingredient. My commitment, my trust, my confidence in the person of the Savior. And because of this centurion's simple confidence, it says, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Just like that, his servant was healed. Number one, because Jesus is willing. He's compassionate. Number two, Jesus is ultimately the authority. There is a tremendous conflict going on. There's a tremendous conflict between good and evil. Tremendous conflict between sickness and health, which is part of that conflict of good and evil. But Jesus is the ultimate authority. We close with when Jesus came to Peter's house in verse 14. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word, there's his authority. And he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. What is Jesus saying here? The presence of the kingdom was present when Jesus was here on the earth. One of the things that I want to understand is that in Jesus' first coming, one of the major purposes of Jesus' first coming was to show us the reality, the characteristics, the heartbeat of what the authority of God, the kingdom of God, is like. When Jesus walked on this planet, he was the king. And his miracles, his miracles are the signposts, they're the description of what the kingdom of God is like. Very important to realize that. So I say, Lord, what's the kingdom of God like? And Jesus says, there's not going to be any leprosy in my kingdom because I'm willing it'll be completely healed. I say, Jesus, what is the kingdom of God is like? He said, well, I taught you in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, blessed are those that are gentle, blessed are those that are humble, all those kind of ideas, because they'll inherit the kingdom of God. So I meet a centurion who's meek and gentle and humble, and he's the one that has the kingdom invade his life. I say, Lord, are there going to be villages? What are villages going to be like in the kingdom? And the Lord says, they're all going to be cleared of diseases. In fact, my kingdom's going to come and just meet the needs of everyday people. Like there's going to be a housewife. There's going to be a housewife who needs to be able to meet the needs of her guests. And I really care about that. And she has a chronic fever condition. I'm going to touch her body. In my kingdom, there will be no mother-in-laws that are working to get a house ready that can't because they have terrible migraine headaches. In the kingdom of God, it'll be gone. 
as you study the life of the Lord Jesus, you are getting a first-hand glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. But as you see that kingdom, there's a tremendous conflict going on because at this point, Jesus heals everybody in the village. But at another point in his ministry, he's going to hang on a cross and he's just going to stay there and eventually he's going to die. And that's part of this tremendous conflict. And it's going to seem like death and sin and disease have won the day. But then the third day he rises from the dead and there's victory. But Jesus ascends to heaven. Jesus ascends to heaven. At the end of the book of Luke, he says that his kingdom is not of this world. Not yet. It's not of this world yet. He says this kingdom is going to be within people's hearts. It's going to have to do with personal relationship, personal commitment to me. I'm not going to just visibly and powerfully and omnipotently force the kingdom. Remember Jesus said one day in his ministry, many are forcing their way into the kingdom. And Jesus implied you can't force your way into the kingdom. You have to come in humbly. And you have to come in by faith. And so as we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2 says, all things have been subjected to him. All things have been put under his feet. But then the writer of Hebrews adds this, not yet do we see all things subjected to him. So you say, well, Dave, where are we today in this healing thing? Where are we today in Jesus' power over disease? We're in the in-between, the not yet. What I'm trying to get across to you today is we need to believe with all of our hearts that our king has the authority and has the willingness and has the heart to heal us of all of our diseases. Disease is never his heart. Disease is never his delight. It's always the antithesis of what his character is. But we also need to remember that he hasn't chosen yet to subject all things to him. So you say, well, Dave, how do we pray? We pray realizing that it's part of a battle. And what I believe as I study the Word of God, what I see in the church age, I see at times where God's people as the body of Christ prayed, and I see the sovereign king at times choosing to give us a glimpse of the kingdom to encourage us. Sometimes he gives us a glimpse of the kingdom to encourage us. Sometimes, according to James 5, when elders pray and they anoint with oil, the Lord gives us a glimpse of the kingdom. Sometimes he does not. The New Testament teaches us that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit work through the beloved physicians. And godly physicians realize that we work together. It's not a cop-out on faith. It's part of living in that in-between. And we need to be very careful not just to retreat into a scientific worldview that denies the vertical dimension, but let's be careful not to go to the vertical dimension and be disobedient to what the Word of God taught us, like Timothy was told to take some wine for his stomach's sake, which would be like, we'll take a prescription for your stomach condition. 
Paul left Epaphroditus in Philippi very, very ill and prayed that the Lord would raise him up. Why didn't Paul just miraculously heal him? Many times Paul was able to do that. In, in Ephesus at one time, in Acts 19, they just sent handkerchiefs out and everybody was healed. Why? Because at that time, the sovereign Lord was choosing in great power to reveal His kingdom. But in this in-between times, sometimes there's tremendous, powerful evidence of the kingdom. Great light. Sometimes it seems very, very dark. You know what the challenge is? What will we believe about the Son? Now what I've talked about is very, very important. Very important for my own ministry. You see, in my tradition, the way I was raised, the way I was trained many times, basically the idea came across, Jesus could really touch people's lives in the first century. He is ultimately going to touch people's lives in the future. But basically in practice it came out, today we just kind of do the best we can. So we go into a hospital room, we say, Lord Jesus, we want you to meet this need. What I'm really thinking in my mind, Lord, I pray the doctor has a lot of skill, which I do pray. But if I'm really honest, sometimes I say, you know, the law of averages, I'm going to be really honest with you. The law of averages in this surgery, as a, as a pastor, teacher, I've been here many times, the law of averages on this particular surgery is about 80%, so I really don't need to be that concerned as we wait in this surgery because probably we're going to make it through and this will probably be the result. And that's sick. There's none of the recognition, the willingness. When the leprous man said, oh, Lord, are you willing? And Jesus said, I'm willing. There's none of that understanding of authority. And I've forgotten all about the kingdom of God. You know what God is calling us to do? He's calling us in the not yet. When we not yet see all things subjected to Christ, He's calling us to live believing in that kingdom. 